Um, so with that, um, I'm going to go ahead and moderate the, the first of the sessions. Um, and this is the, um, you know, starting at the very beginning, when and what to start. Uh, and so what I'll do now is run through some of the key recommendations, and then we'll go on to a panel discussion of some of the uh, points that are raised by these recommendations. So here are the key recommendations for when to start ART. First and foremost, start as soon as possible after diagnosis, including if one has the, um, the setup to do so, immediate uh, start, so-called rapid or same-day start, if the patient is ready. What's a very strong recommendation? Uh, remove any structural barriers that delay ART. Uh, there was a time that um, we would delay ART. That time, I think, is over. And, uh, and so remove those barriers that get in the way of starting ART. Um, one of the most challenging parts of starting ART is the relationship between ART and uh, opportunistic infection treatment. We're lucky to have a number of real experts on the panel in that domain. So um, um, in the setting of most OIs, the recommendation is to start within two weeks, uh, with a particular exception that I will highlight, which is tuberculosis. And we'll delve into that, as well as cryptococcal meningitis. And then finally, for individuals with cancer, uh, immediate ART, but with very close attention to drug-drug interactions and monitoring for early ART adverse events. So now we'll go from, from when to start to really what to start. And, and this is a fairly, you know, consolidated list of recommended initial ther- uh, regimens for most people with HIV, and they include bactegravir, tenofovir, alafenamide, and tricytabine. Uh, dolutegravir plus either TAF-FTC or TDF-FTC or TAF, um, uh, or, or TDF-3TC, uh, I think that should say. And uh, then dolutegravir, lamivudine, uh, with a couple of caveats. Um, some of the caveats uh, are listed here, but when we get into the discussion, I think there'll be an opportunity to explore um, when um, the panel would use the two-drug therapy of uh, two-drug regimen of dolutegravir, lamivudine. Uh, let's go on to the next slide. Um, the panel or the um, guidelines also outline a number of other initial ART regimens, including protease inhibitor-based regimens uh, uh, listed here, um, other integrase inhibitor-based regimens, the new NNRTI deravirine, uh, the old NNRTI favorins, uh, and then um, uh, the integrase inhibitor raltegravir, as well as uh, ropivirine. And I think during the discussion, we'll, we'll talk about when one might use a non-integrase-based um, uh, regimen or a regimen other than the ones on the, on the earlier slide. Some of these will have particular niches, and we'll explore with the panel what those niches might be. And then the next slide talks about um, OIs again and really highlights a couple of key points. The recommendations in the guidelines comment on active TB, obviously the most um, important co-infection worldwide is tuberculosis. And when a person is on a rifamycin, being careful to change your dosing of the integrase inhibitors, dolutegravir and raltegravir with the doses listed here. Uh, Efavirenz does not need a dose change, and those are in combination with two nucleosides. A reminder that the newest integrase inhibitor, bactegravir, um, does not play well with rifampin and really shouldn't be used uh, with rifampin. And then for the boosted PIs and, and a person on a boosted PI, um, don't use that with TB unless you don't have access to an integrase inhibitor, a fabrance, or if, unless a person has drug resistance that precludes the use of an integrase inhibitor or a fabrance. And if possible, uh, and you have a person on a PI, uh, use rifabutin over uh, rifampin, less drug interactions with rifabutin. 
So I think uh, those are the, that's the penultimate slide. And then the ultimate slide, the last slide is uh, ART during pregnancy. And um, here you see a couple of the PI choices that always boosted with ritonavir. So either atazanavir, ritonavir, darunavir, ritonavir. You see the choice of dogutegravir, and we'll talk about that because that's a, um, uh, and, and one of the pre-session pre, uh, questions was the use of dogutegravir during pregnancy. Efavirenz, um, ironically, a drug that we had concerns about in the past, but um, with more and more information, a drug for which we have good safety data during pregnancy. The integration of the Raltegvir or um, the NNRTI Wilpivirine, all of these can be given with TDF-FTC or TDF-3TC. And then the newest uh, data is really on the combination of Dogutegvir uh, plus TAF-FTC. And when we um, talk to the panel, we'll, we'll see what those data are. So let's see. I don't think, Mike, there's any other slides. Yep. Okay, perfect. So with that, we, let's, yeah, go ahead, Mike. Should, let, maybe we should just go back to this first one and have a discussion about the details of when to, when to start. Perfect. So what I'd like to do with our panel that are located really all throughout the, the country, and um, and I'd like to explore with the panel when it is that they're starting antiretroviral therapy in relationship to a new new diagnosis and get a sense what some of the um, variations in practice are. Maybe I'll start with Dr. Wolberding, Paul Wolberding in San Francisco, where really they pioneered this this idea of a rapid start, at least here in the United States. Do you want to comment in San Francisco when you were typically starting ART and what uh, the approach has been taken to um, remove some of those barriers that can get in the way? Yeah, Raj, thanks. Um, and as you said, the uh, People where I used to work at San Francisco General Hospital, um, uh, where, where, um, where your sister is, uh, rather, uh, featured, um, have really pioneered, uh, the concept of immediate, uh, antiretroviral therapy and have really run with it now for several years. Um, the, the idea is that if you have, um, the organizational setup, um, that allows it, um, you can, ideally get people into treatment the same day that they're diagnosed. And they've tried some very innovative uh, ways to do that, transporting patients, getting patients uh, screened very quickly. Um, I think in practice, uh, it probably doesn't matter if it's the first, the same day or very early, but the idea is that in contrast to the way we used to think, which is, you know, establish a relationship with a provider first, uh, do all your laboratory testing first, um, that there, there, there are ways that you can shorten that. Um, and evidence from resource limited settings from several trials that have been done shows that it actually improves, um, entry and, and retention and care, uh, shortens the time to viral suppression. Um, as, as the, as the guidelines, uh, go through, uh, we don't really have that control data, uh, from a resource, uh, rich settings, uh, where the trials just haven't been done. Uh, but I think most people think that the earlier, the better, but with some caveats. Right. The, the days when we used to tell people to go home, practice taking ART with yeah. tic for two or three weeks and then come back, yeah. those those days sounds like yeah. should be over. Maybe I'll ask the, the folks in Atlanta where you, um, a different part of the country, um, Dr. Del Rio and Dr. Uh, Thompson, what, what has been the approach in Atlanta um, and how do you compare it or contrast it to what you heard from Dr. from San Francisco experience? Melanie, you want to go first? Well, um, as you might imagine, Atlanta is a little different than San Francisco. 
Um, but uh, I, I think it's important to try to understand why that person is presenting to care um, to begin. So uh, I like to start treatment on the first visit when possible, but I also think it, starting treatment on the first day may not really result in long-term improvements in retention and care. I don't think it means that people are less likely to be retained in care, but I think it is really important, particularly um, in what I like to consider a resource-limited setting like Atlanta, um, that people have housing, they have transportation, they have the ability to come back to visits. um, And so these things need to be addressed at the same time that we're offering people an opportunity to uh, start treatment. And I, I think knowing why that person came into care, you know, did they just get a diagnosis? Have they been diagnosed for a while and they're just deciding to come into care? Why is that? What do they need? If we don't address their immediate needs at that first visit, then we're less likely to get them to come back. I do think it's important to educate patients that we have treatment that can help them live um, essentially a normal lifespan uh, and be healthy and to not transmit HIV to others. So there's a lot of education that needs to go on in that first visit. But I, I really do think we should do everything we can to deliver antiretrovirals to those patients at their first visit um, when it's appropriate and, you know, when that is something that they they feel that they can do. So, but addressing these structural things, being sure we have a context for helping people to stay in care and supporting them is really important, uh, particularly in areas like Atlanta, where the loss to follow-up for care is substantially high. Great. That's perfect. Um, and actually, I, I think one of the audience um, members asked about what are the most up-to-date data about rates of ongoing viral suppression in people who start very rapidly? And I, I think uh, one of these barriers are removed um, in San Francisco General, for example, even in a high-risk population, it can be 85 90% or more. But it, the key part of that sentence is removing those barriers. So, And, and I, um, think, I think, Raj, as, as, as Melanie said, I think what we did in a study that we did here in, in Atlanta at our clinic, you can get people suppressed. You can get them suppressed faster if you do an immediate start. Uh, the challenge is the long-term retention. So, you know, don't forget about that component. And I, I guess just emphasizing look at what, what Melanie said, my priority as a physician may be to get you on therapy and get you suppressed. Your priority as a patient may be something totally different. And I think meeting the patient where they are, I think, is really important. My biggest concern continues to be and we can, we'll talk about labs and other things later, but here in Atlanta, in many places in the country, we continue to diagnose people with very low CD4 counts, with advanced disease. So I would say we're starting antiretroviral therapy. Even in those that we started the same day, we're starting it late already. Because, because that's the late start is, is dictated by their CD4 count, not by when we started them on drugs. That's but a good point. When we talk the about... point that, I think one of the points to be made, maybe this is what the, question in the chat box is about is whether there's a difference long term in degree of viral suppression for people who start immediately in the rapid start studies versus 
at a time point that makes the most sense for you and for the patient and for the infrastructure of the clinical setting in which they're getting therapy. And I think that's the point that Melanie and Carlos were making is that long term, there's really no difference in degree of viral suppression. As long as people are getting started on appropriate therapy and are retained in care, the viral suppression rates are the same, whether they start immediately or whether they start at a time point that may be a few days to a week later after diagnosis. So I think um, the point here is you want to start as early as you can, given the infrastructure and the appropriateness for individual patients with, but you shouldn't worry that if you don't start immediately that you're putting people at risk for not being able to maintain viral suppression later on. Great. I think that's maybe a good transition to our next topic, which is going to keep you on the microphone, Dr. Benson, which is um, in the setting of an opportunistic infection. Um, say someone is in the hospital, not previously diagnosed, comes in with an OI, um, how quickly do you start antiretroviral therapy after you initiate the, the OI therapy? And it's a big topic, so rather than go through all of them, uh, maybe uh, focus on some of the outliers. How, uh, let's say pneumocystis and cryptococcal meningitis. Use those two as our, our examples. So, uh, you know, I think the, the concept of immediate initiation also applies during opportunistic infections. There are data to suggest that you can improve um, immune uh, restoration and improve the response to therapy for many OIs by starting antiretroviral therapy. So my approach, if I'm offered the opportunity by the primary care provider, is to start antiretroviral therapy in the hospital while people are receiving treatment for um, pneumocystis pneumonia. Um, I think it's important to get them started on antiretroviral therapy while they're being treated for their opportunistic infection. You mentioned a couple of outliers, and those have to do with studies showing um, that interference based on drug-drug interactions or the severity in particular for central nervous system infections like cryptococcal meningitis might alter your approach to immediate start of antiretroviral therapy during an opportunistic infection. So most of the data with tuberculosis show that immediate start of ART in the setting of uh, TB in people with higher CD4 counts doesn't make a difference in that it's more important to get them started on anti-TB therapy and making sure that they're tolerating that anti-TB therapy and you're getting the tuberculosis under control first before starting antiretroviral therapy, particularly antiretroviral therapies that might interfere um, with their tolerance of their TB treatment or have a drug-drug interaction associated with their TB treatment. And the same is likely to be true for cryptococcal meningitis. There's one very large study that we all refer to now um, of cryptococcal meningitis that showed that mortality was increased when antiretroviral therapy was started early in the course of cryptococcal meningitis. The caveat with that study is that it was done in a resource-limited setting with patients who didn't have access to a lot of the 
supportive care that we have here in the U.S. And so um, we're not at a point in our epidemic any longer where we can do a large clinical trial of treatment for cryptococcal meningitis in the context of what we have available to us for antiretroviral therapy now. So whether the um, mortality rates that were seen with that study in Uganda would be seen in patients who have the kind of supportive care for treatment of cryptococcal meningitis that we have in in the U.S. is hard to say. So I think there's still, um, we follow the data and the, and the recommendations and the guidelines based on the data we have available to us, but with the caveat that if you have maximum supportive care and good follow-up, you may be able to start antiretroviral therapy sooner, even for patients with cryptococcal meningitis. Great. Yeah, two two quick points. Nice One is exactly as you said that, uh, but the mortality rates in in the studies in sub-Saharan Africa were quite a bit higher than what we see, just in general than what we see in the U.S. So it brings up uh, highlights your point. And there has been one cohort retrospective study that's not in press yet, but it was presented at Cori a few years ago um, that showed that there wasn't much difference on early, meaning in the first two weeks versus after that. But it's a cohort study. It wasn't randomized. But I think if, my view is if we go anything after two weeks, two to four weeks, it should be okay. Would you agree? Yeah. I Let's do. Transition. Thank you. Let's transition from when to start to, to what to start. I'm going to ask the panelists to weigh in on one of the newer recommendations was it's the use of dodutegivir 3TC, a, a two-drug regimen. We, we, many of us have been doing this for some time and that was not what we did until recently. And, and maybe Paul Sachs, you can tell us your approach to, um, when do you use the two-drug therapy of uh, dodutegivir 3TC, dodutegivir lamivudine, and when do you not use it for initial therapy? Yeah. Well, it's very, it's easier to say when not to use it, uh, because the caveats are so clear. And, you know, we really don't want to use it for someone who has hepatitis B chronically, because you can select for resistance with lumivudine monotherapy. It hasn't been extensively tested in people with viral loads higher than 500,000. They're the occasional patient that's screened in the Gemini trial, and there was also some in the recent STAT study. But most people have had low viral loads who've been on this regimen. Uh, so, so a viral load below 500,000, certainly, and then maybe below 200, because there aren't that many people with advanced HIV disease who have CD4 cell counts, uh, I mean, with, who've been on this regimen. And then, uh, the, the rapid start scenario, um, it, you can, you can argue this two ways. One is that the rapid start shouldn't you shouldn't use two drug therapy because you don't have the genotype back yet often. You don't maybe have no the hepatitis B status. Uh, and you don't, may not have the viral load back yet. Uh, and so all these things together, uh, I'll give you my, my gut feeling on this. Um, I think dolotegravir-lamivudine's best use is not an in initial therapy, but it's in switch therapy. And, and so most of the time, at least as of 2020, October 29th, just checking the date, uh, that it's actually going to be best using this regimen to switch therapy in people who are suppressed. And we have excellent data for that. And I think that's, that's, it's optimal use. Great. Um, the stats oh. study was mentioned. Um, this was a study that was presented recently in a meeting in Glasgow where uh, a group of individuals, a little over 130 or so were started on um, dodutegra 3TC before the results of the hepatitis B testing, um, genotypic testing and, and creatinine clearance were back. And then they looked at how many people had to adjust therapy 
And about eight or so people had to adjust therapy based on having turned out to have hepatitis B, where you want to know if you're on board. And uh, in one instance of those hundred and so people, um, uh, there was a transmitted M184V where you wouldn't uh, use a two-drug regimen. Um, a number of people didn't make it out to 24 weeks, and then when they counted those as failures, um, that turned out to be about 80% of people, you know, if, if you counted people who didn't make it to 24 weeks who withdrew for some reason, um, um, were counted as failures. But if you looked at people who were on the regimen, it was 92%. I would agree, though, that why in this day and age, um, uh, when you have, don't have those things in hand, um, it seems very reasonable to use three-drug therapy and then step down to Dogutegavir-3-TC, for which there's very, very good data, and we may talk about that data later on in the session. Any other differences of uh, thoughts or, Mike, you want to add to that? Well, yeah, so there was a couple questions that came in through the, uh, from the audience. One is, uh, and I think both you guys or others can address, one is what's the difference between what the ISUSA guidelines are saying in particular about when to start and what to start. I think the two-drug therapy is one difference, isn't it? You know, in recent, um, the most recent DHHS guidelines have also endorsed the use of Dogutegavir 3CC with with the caveats that are being um, discussed here. So I think in many ways the two um, have converged over time. Uh, Paul, did you you look like? I mean, the main differences are are the loss of the back of your three TC dolutegravir as a recommended initial regimen, and then also raltegravir as a recommended initial regimen because of you know for the reasons that we're all familiar with. I mean, there it's hard to argue if dolutegravir lamivudine is so effective, why you'd need dolutegravir lamivudine a back of year. Uh, given all the concerns about abacavir. And the second is raltegravir has a lower resistance barrier and has, uh, you know, can't be co-formulated. And so even though it has a nice safety profile, good drug interaction profile, and it does have some good pregnancy data, though not quite as much as other drugs, it's, it's, it's really, for most people starting therapy, you would choose uh, dolotegravir or bictegravir. So those are still on the... Uh, the DHHS guidelines. Uh, another difference that uh, that we've talked about a lot is that the at first there there were quite some differences between the various guidelines that are out there. I think as as we gain more experience, uh, we've, we've really converged. Um, a lot of these um, it just happens to be when when a certain guideline was was first uh, was was latest went through latest revision. Uh, but the ISUSA has always felt that uh, one of the real strengths of of our guidelines. Uh, is not their differences between the, the DHHS. The DHHS are a great reference source, um, uh, really extensively referenced. Uh, we uh, are, in that sense, we might suffer because we publish in a, in a, in a journal, and so we're, we have to be shorter. But I think that's a real strength. So we think that the, the guidelines that we uh, put out uh, uh, are uh, really pretty useful um, in the day-to-day practice, and I think that's that's probably one of the remaining big differences. The other oh, advantage that you can read our guidelines, uh, the ISU USA guidelines in a single sitting, whereas it's harder to read the guidelines in a single sitting. David, maybe I'll ask you the question that's being asked by the audience, which is, if you start with three drugs, um, how long would you like to see someone virologically suppressed before you might consider switching them to Dalgutegavir 3TC? When is that transition point for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's, uh, it's really about the comfortable that the patient and the provider has, uh, 
but uh, I, I usually don't do it until I see at least six months, six months of good suppression. And um, usually, and even I, I probably that's actually not true. I probably wait more than a year. Um, but um, I want to see some durability of suppression before I do uh, my switch. The study from which we have the most data, the Tango study, people were durably suppressed for a period of time. I believe it was more than a year. But um, obviously a good regimen, and I think you're right, once people are durably suppressed, you're in a good place in terms of uh, stepping down. The people I'm stepping down early these days are the ones who might be on a, a back of there where I want to, and they're in a, a group where they might have cardiovascular risks. And as we heard, the use of the back there um, has been really downplayed over time because of um, the, uh, the data that we've gotten from these trials. Any other comments on, on this uh, particular issue? There's some hot button issues having to do with weight gain and um, people who are trying to conceive. So we want to make sure there's time for that. But any other comments to finish this discussion? Yeah, there's a couple of comments coming through about not just when, but wait for the lab to come back, of course. That would be back within that three to six month period where they're being suppressed. And then there's a question about weight gain. We don't really have a special part of this. I do, I know we want to get to the special populations about what to use in, uh, TB and pregnancy, but, uh, quick comments, anyone about yeah. the weight gain story? Yeah. I would love to hear people's thoughts on, um, in a person who's concerned about weight gain, but, but hasn't gained the weight, you know, are there certain regimens you, you would steer away from? Or in a person at high risk for weight gain, and, and that was one of the questions, the pre-session questions, what, what is a high risk person for weight gain? Um, if someone's at high risk for weight gain, are there regimens you would steer away from? So let, let's see what the panelists think about those two interrelated questions on weight gain. This is Davey. Yeah. yeah, this is Davey. I can just weigh in a little bit, uh, pun intended, um, is that I don't, I don't usually uh, pick my regimen based on what I think in terms of weight gain, but I do have the discussion ahead of time is like, this, especially if somebody who has risk factors for increasing weight, like low CD4 count, being black, uh, you know, woman, th- those are, those are big risk factors. And I want to have that conversation right up front and be, and say, Hey, you're going to get better on these medications, but we need to talk about weight gain and we're going to measure it and what, and we're going to come up with diet and exercise to get you overall healthy. And I, I think those are the conversations that, uh, increase adherence because what I've seen before is that if I didn't have that conversation, people stop taking their medicines because they don't like the weight gain. Um, Anyone want to comment? Well, uh, and in contrast to, you know, a few years ago, I think we all believe that weight gain is a real issue. Um, and it's, it also strikes me that it's, um, we haven't seen a lot of data, but that it's pretty hard to lose the weight once, once, uh, once they gain it. So, um, I think I, I agree with Davey completely. I think having a good discussion is is, is really important. Paul, um, actually, had led some studies having to do with weight gain with different regimens. Which which regimens do you think are most associated with weight gain, uh, both among the nucleosides and the the classes? Uh, and and what do you do about it if someone does gain weight? So the regimens that are associated with the greatest weight gain are are those that have TAF rather than TDF, and integrase inhibitors rather than efavirenz, which is clear in study after study after study, whether it's initial therapy or switch therapy, uh, those are the, that's the information we have that's most clear. Now, what, what's not clear is whether the, the TDF and efavirenz are suppressing weight, and that there is actually pretty good evidence that that's the case. 
or whether the TAF and or the integrase are contributing to weight gain? And if so, how are they doing that since they are molecularly so, so different uh, and no, nobody knows the answer yet. So I guess the, you know, speaking on behalf of the panel, I'd like to say that we didn't feel that the data on weight gain were sufficient to warrant making alternative recommendations to what to start based on the current knowledge. And if Matt, does would... gain weight, um, do you have a go-to regimen, Dr. Benson, if someone gains 10% or more of their body weight, what would you do? Uh, well, I was just going to comment first. I want to give a shout out to the audience to um, Dr. Sachs's article in Clinical Infectious Disease, because I think it was one of the the clearest assessments of this problem relative to not just which regimen people were on and which drugs contributed to weight gain, but also some of the underlying factors like race and ethnicity and age and some of the other factors that contribute to weight gain. So if you want to read a really nice summary of the data and uh, an assessment of regimens, I would point you to that article. So, Dr. Um, Benson, just, thank you. Thank you for highlighting it in your nice ISUSA. That's why uh, I your, your nice uh, ID, ID week summary. I read you. <laughs> well, I, I highlighted it because, it, you know, you can go through, I think there are literally hundreds of manuscripts published now on weight gain associated with antiretroviral therapy. And you could, your eyes will go crossed if you try to read them all, which is why <laughs> I'm pointing you to this one, because I think it's, it is, a, it is a great article. What do we do about a weight gain when it happens, Paul Sachs? So, um, or Connie Benson, go ahead. Yeah, so go ahead, Paul. Yeah. No, no, that's yours. <laughs> Dr. Benson, what do you do if someone gains more than 10%? We have that question in the when to switch, too. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's a more appropriate question for the when to switch commentary, but... Uh, um, you know, I, when I talk to colleagues who are taking care of patients, I, I'll tell you a brief story, but one of my colleagues who um, leads the infectious disease program for one of our community health centers on the border here, and she was one of the first to alert us of um, women who were being seen in her clinic who had massive weight gain after switching to dolutegravir and TAF-based regimens. And her approach, as Davey indicated, they were stopping their therapy because the weight gain was so disturbing to them. Um, so what her approach was is to switch them back to a regimen that included TDF and efavirenz until they could get control of their weight. Um, I don't know if that's the right answer. There have been no sort of switch studies to look at what do you do when someone um, gains more than 10% of their weight, but um, maybe other people have data like from the Scenix cohort, Davey and Mike, if there are any data that you all have collected about people who've had massive you know, I would call 10% massive weight gain on antiretroviral therapy, what people are doing out in the community. But why don't, why don't we do this? And the one and uh, how to switch, this is going to come up yet again. And I do want to have one moment of time on women of childbearing potential. Um, Mike, you look like you're about to say something, but can we come back to weight gain? Um, keep yeah, people the, in suspense? The, the short answer is no, there isn't any guidance there. But I think we should move on to pregnancy and circle back to 
to weight gain when, when Paul uh, runs us through the next section. Okay. So this will be the last question to the panel for this particular section, and, and then I'll briefly summarize um, some of the pre-test um, questions that were put to the group and go through some of the um, highlights of, of those. But for a person, I'm going to put it in two different contexts. Um, a woman who's already pregnant, let's say in the second trimester of pregnancy, uh, what regimens do people feel are best supported by the data in a woman who's already pregnant? Let's start with that. Um, I'm looking around at our panel and seeing, um, Dr. Thompson, would you like to comment on a woman who's pregnant, um, what you would start them on? I think you're muted. Oh. I think you're muted. What's a Zoom call without someone being muted? <laughs> I know. I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, I was trying to protect from the background noise. Uh, so um, it, it may be important to say what we shouldn't start people on who are pregnant, and uh, cobacistat-containing regimens would be um, one thing that I would caution against. The, uh, the drug levels are affected by pregnancy, so we really don't want any regimen that contains cobacistat. Um, the recommended regimens include um, atazanavir, ritonavir, darunavir, ritonavir, uh, dolutegravir-containing regimens, um, and as well as some of the other alternate regimens like efavirenz, raltegravir, and rilpivirine. Um, I feel comfortable with dolutegravir-containing regimens uh, even early on, and we can talk about that more. But certainly the data are very clear that when someone is pregnant, dolutegravir is a safe regimen. So I feel very comfortable with that. I still prefer not to use boosted regimens if I can get away with that um, because of interaction with other drugs that may come on board um, and also because of side effects. So I, I would tend to choose a dolutegravir-containing regimen. Um, and there are less data with TAF. So I think uh, there is that concern, but uh, tenofovir-based regimens uh, appear to be safe in pregnancy. And one study that was highlighted in these new guidelines is uh, recent, which is in um, uh, a study called the Vested Study, which looked at people largely in Africa, 85 90% in Africa, women in their second trimester, and they compared an efavirenz-based regimen to a dolutegravir-based regimen. And the Dolutegravir regimen, perhaps not surprisingly, got people, got women suppressed more quickly. And so at the time of delivery, more women were suppressed. But what was a surprise to me is that in the group that got TAF with Dolutegravir with FTC, um, there were actually fewer adverse pregnancy outcomes than in the group that got um, um, the other regimens, the Efavirenz, uh, TDF, FTC. And that was important data that I think... Um, uh, still probably being assessed, but it's highlighted in these guidelines around the safety of that particular regimen. So something, something new. Um, yeah. What about yeah, you? Yeah. It's, it's a good point. In the absence of a substantial data set with TAF, I think that is reassuring. I, I is certainly reassuring. wouldn't go as far to say that TAF in pregnancy, um, but it's certainly reassuring. Yep. You know, it does. It 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 was. Uh, you know, and I this, I was lucky enough to be on this protocol team for that study. And feel like the study was a fairly large randomized clinical trial, which we don't see in pregnancy very often. Uh, and and since there has been a previous study where there was a poor outcome associated with high tenofovir levels, remember TDF, right. FTC, lopinavir, ritonavir, very high levels of tenofovir. 
something maybe about the lower dose of tenofovir alafenamide may be, may be beneficial for, for pregnancy. So uh, it's something that I, I feel is very, was very reassuring. So um, We're about to run over into the next session, but it's just such an important question that maybe we'll finish with this, which is in a person who comes to you who wants to conceive a child, a woman who wants to conceive a child, um, what are your thoughts these days about dogutegivir safety? Of course, there have been concerns, but um, can someone give me their their um, their latest thinking on the safety of dogutegivir in person, not already pregnant, but trying to conceive? No, I think that I think the data from the Simpano study clearly shows uh, that that there is a a probably a, a slightly higher risk of of neural tube defects in women in that study on dolutegravir. But the, the, the data, when you look, when they have done more analysis and you look at other places, there's data from Brazil and other sites suggesting that that's not the case. So I don't think this is entirely a settled issue, but I think at this point in time, the, the, the risk of neural tube defects is something worth talking about, but it's not something that will, it's not something large enough that it will prohibit me from, from prescribing a dolutegravir-based regimen to a pregnant woman or a woman who's wanting to get pregnant, I will make sure that she is also getting folate supplementation and other things that we know impact neural tube defects. But the data right now suggests we can do that safely. Yeah, a key point. Any other comments on this before we transition to the next section? And just that Bictegravir, as as the guidelines uh, suggest, may may well be fine, but we just don't have enough data to, uh, to have it recommended as highly as the others. Yeah. Important point. In fact, one of the pre-session questions was just on, on that type of issue. And, and the one to absolutely avoid, as uh, Dr. Thompson said, is the cobacystat-containing regimens. But I would agree, until we have more information on Bictegravir, um, w- wouldn't use it during pregnancy. So, um, so with that, I think we're um, coming to the end of the when and what to start. And it's a nice transition, I think, over to Dr. Paul Sachs from Brigham Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School, who's going to lead us through a discussion of when and how to switch. So now that someone is on therapy, when and how to switch. Over to you, Paul.